0: Hello, and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez.
1: And I'm Steve Edelman.
0: Hey, Steve, great to see you today. What are we going to talk about?
1: Today, we're going to talk about Slope Day at Cornell University. Yes, Slope Day.
0: Near my my old stomping grounds.
1: That's right. (laughs) This is upstate New York talk here, um, and it's also about... um, weather and crowds and university-related issues, so it's a whole potpourri of fun, safety-related conversation. And for this conversation about Slope Day, etc. at Cornell University, we have Joe Scafido, who is the Director of University Events uh, Conference and Event Services at Cornell. So, hello, Joe. Hi, Steve and Danielle. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Welcome. Welcome to the pod.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the event safety podcast, Joe Scafito. So, <laughs> Joe, let's start out by telling our listeners, what is Slope Day at Cornell University? Where does it come from? What's it about now?
2: Sure, Steve. Uh, Slope Day has a, has a great history. It, it started actually back around 1901 with a, a, a spring day event, a celebration where the uh, university students came to, came, to, came together to form a, a fundraising event for Cornell Athletics. And it started first few years with things like a circus and a parade through the campus, uh, some musical bands, things like that. And it just evolved over the years. I mean, obviously there were some breaks during the Great Depression, World War I, uh, things of that nature, uh, and, and even into the 60s with the, a lot of activism around campuses. So. It, it kind of evolved, took some breaks here and there. But then in the, uh, in the 80s, the university put together a barbecue, three a barbecue. Cornell Dining put together a barbecue on Live Slope, which is a huge slope, kind of in the center of campus, a great gathering spot for students and, and the entire community, really. And uh, back in the 80s, uh, the, the drinking age was lower. Uh, New York State drinking age was 19, I think, in 1982, and then went up to 21 later uh, in the 80s. But the university would have uh, a, a, some alcohol out there, some uh, free food, things like that. And, and eventually, a student organization called the Cornell Concert Commission would put some music out there. And it was a celebration. It t- typically took place around the last day of classes or on the last day of classes for a number of years. And uh, and it was just a, a, a great way to, to celebrate the end of the spring semester. Uh, eventually, into the 90s, things got a little bit out of control, and uh, students really used it as a... As a reason to party, and folks would go out on the slope as early as six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, they would start partying early. They would bury kegs the night before the event, and have taps sticking out of the ground. Bring out lawn furniture and couches. Uh, it, it got really, um, really uh, to be a, a somewhat of a headache for the administration. And uh, the administration at that point, you know, they they there was they were no longer serving food. They were no longer really monitoring the event other than providing some volunteers to make sure folks were okay and to clean up the mess afterwards. But there's really no regulation. There was no control over who was attending. Uh, from what I understand, some local schools would bring busloads of students to, uh, to the event. There was no age restriction. So we had some issues with local high school students uh, coming to the event. And again, uh, alcohol was, was readily available. Uh, it, it was just not, not a good sight
0: so, so wh- I, I would say that, that the question we always ask in risk management is what could go wrong <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> here, I think it should be what what couldn't well, go wrong
0: seems <laughs> <laughs> so like there were so many. I was like, oh, and okay so so, how has it evolved since the wild since those West hellish days of day? the nineties?
1: <laughs> Podcast yeah. listeners, Danielle and I both aged about 10 years as Joe
2: Scafido was going
1: through this. <laughs> T-
2: tell us some better news, Joe. <laughs> so in, in the mid-90s, the, the university, university actually tried to cancel Slope Day, and about five or 6,000 people showed up by 9 a.m. So that didn't work. They tried to relocate it to North Campus a, a while ago, a different part of campus. Uh, that didn't work. The students formed a Take Back the Slope campaign. Uh, so there, there were a lot of different initiatives going back and forth. Uh, I arrived at Cornell in 1997, and actually, that was part, part of my interview questions was around Slope Day. I was uh, interviewing for positions in student activities, which was one one of the, the main kind of stakeholders of the event. Uh, the year before, it had rained drastically, and there were there was obviously sledding down the slope in the rain and the mud, and there were a lot of transports to the hospital from. Uh, broken glass, cuts from broken glass on the slope. So they were really looking at redoing a lot of things. So yes, from a risk management point of view, it's You're getting better what, and better. what are we thinking? <laughs> so uh, late nineties, early two thousands, the university kind of came together, the administration kind of came together. The president at the time issued a, a, a somewhat of a mandate to the dean of students, who said, "We need to get a, a better handle on this event." So. Early 2000 2001, 2002, we put, started putting restriction on the amount of alcohol people could bring in. You know, one six-pack of beer, no liquor, no hard liquor, things like that. Again, very difficult to monitor. It's a huge open space, thousands of people coming from every direction. Um, it, 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 you know, we could ask for IDs, but, you know, thousands of people and very limited security staff, that was really challenging to do. The 2002 event saw a couple transports of some very young people, uh, teenagers. Which was very scary, um, but but also very alarming. And at that point, the president said, "Well, we we've we've made some changes, and and they were good, but we need to we need to make more changes."
0: So, for our audience, just to clarify, when he's saying transport, that means EMS took them to a hospital. Okay, go by on by ambulance. That's correct. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, Uh Very very sad to see, uh, alarming to see as a college administrator. And again, some of these folks were not even college students; they're high school students high school kids. Uh, so, 2002, uh, group came together, uh, the President's uh, Commission on Alcohol and Other Drugs, a uh, university committee made up of faculty, staff, and students, and we were charged with putting together an event that the university now owns. So, as we came together, started planning in the fall for the 2003 May event, and we came up with the idea of we need to contain this, so we need to construct a fence. We need to cater it ourselves. So we need to provide alcohol. We need to somehow limit admissions, things like that, 18 and over, uh, limit the the number of folks on the outside. So the first few events were just that. It was fenced in, we had five gates. Um, People could not bring in their own food or alcohol. We catered it, Cornell Dining catered it. Uh, Cornell catered and supplied the alcohol from an outside vendor, did everything through New York State Liquor Authority, made sure we were doing everything by the book. and we, we charge a small fee for non-students. Uh, but in return, the students wanted something. You know, they, they, the students kind of came to the table and said, you know, we, we understand the safety concerns, but we still want to celebrate, so can we have music? Uh, the challenge, of course, is, is the last day of classes. So there's still classes going on, and this typically takes place around 11 a.m. or 12 o'clock noon, uh, it, it, again, right in the middle of, uh, of campus. So there's classroom buildings uh, 100 yards, 200 yards away from the main stage. So how do, we, uh, how do we bring in a national headlining act? How do we conduct uh, sound checks and do setup and run some noise through the speakers and things like that? So we kind of came together. Students of the administration came together, and the, the students said, yeah, we'll give into this uh, kind of no alcohol. You can't bring your own alcohol, but you can cater it. If you're 21, you can purchase alcohol there. Uh, but we want music in return. So the first year, it's what we did. We brought in Rusted Root. In uh, Fat Joe, there were two uh, headlining artists, we brought in a, another uh, uh, artist by the name of Dave Binder, who was a, a smaller act, but he opened up and was well known across some colleges, universities, get the crowds excited. Uh, and, and it went well, you know, students liked it, but some students still didn't, you know, they, they wanted to bring their friends, they didn't want to have to worry about going through a gate and showing their IDs and things of that nature. So we were so concerned about the pre-gaming. Uh, a lot of things happening outside the fence, uh, tailgating, if you will, at local fraternity houses. Uh, the following year, we were able to land a, an up-and-coming artist by the name of Kanye West. Uh, Kanye was actually the, the opening act in 2004. OER was a headliner. And uh, by the time slope day rolled around, Kanye had just blown up. And uh, he, he was still uh, slotted, slotted in the, the uh, support act uh, slot. But, you know, people came and and uh, they couldn't believe that we were able to get him. So people just migrated to the slope. And it was huge, enormous. Uh, that, that was one of the events we actually did a time-lapse video. And it's it's humorous to see now because the technology wasn't great back then. But you can see all the, the people migrating towards the slope and then leaving after Kanye's performance. Uh, but again, you know, what the administration discovered was, hey, we might have something here. If we can pour some money into artists, we can get people onto the slope eliminating that pre-gaming, which was a, a huge concern. The pre, pre-gaming was a big concern at the time uh, because we didn't have any control over that. We want people on the slope. We recognize f- folks are celebrating and drinking, but if they're drinking off campus and drinking illegally, we don't have any control over that. We, we can't offer them the services and, and the help they might need. And that's something we're really concerned about. So we really want to do that. And then after that, you know, the following year, we, we were able to land Snoop Dogg and that, that just kind of set the bar from there. Uh, Snoop Dogg was a record crowd. I think it was about 19,000 people. Uh, students were allowed to bring in some of their guests, some of their friends from other schools, but we still implemented that age limit. We still served alcohol ourselves so people can bring in their own alcohol. And uh, we did a lot of post surveys. we partner uh, quite a bit with our our local um, uh, or our university offices, uh, Cornell Health being one of our main partners in this whole, whole process. And with that, they do a a post-event survey. Uh, And one of the things that they recognized in 2005 was people actually commented that they wanted to stay sober or not drink as much because they wanted to see the artists. They were really interested in seeing Snoop Dogg. So that was something that we really looked at and said, "Okay, we need to pour some more money towards the entertainment. We need to make this a true festival, an event that students can brag about and want to take ownership out of. So uh, a student organization was formed called the Slope Day Programming Board. And uh, it was a group that I advised for many years and their role was to come up with the artists. You know, we want the students to come up with this. We don't want the staff members to figure out who's gonna be playing on Slope Day. If they did, it would be an event that nobody would go to. So we really wanted the students to take ownership over this event and they did. And uh, from there, the the Student Assembly, which is our funding commission, a funding board, they put some money towards it. The administration came forward. So it was a great partnership between the administration and the students to really come up with an event that was a celebration. And it was a celebration that encompassed the entire Cornell community. Uh, students came to, to celebrate again the classes, faculty and staff helped volunteer. And the event uh, attracts about four or 500 volunteers every year. So students, faculty, and staff volunteered for the event. Uh, the students could bring a guest or two if they had somebody at a local college or friends coming up, but everybody had to be 18. We monitored the the access to the alcohol. We provided food. uh, And and it was a partnership across the entire university. You know, it was uh, the logistics, the the planning committee, operations committee. There was a steering committee. And then you had the student programming board. Those are really the three main components that make up the entire event.
0: So I think... You said this is free for for the Cornell community, correct? The, as in the university, students, et cetera. That's,
2: that, that's right. So the so, undergraduate students, currently the undergraduate students, they pay for this event through their student activity fee. So undergraduate students get in for free. Graduate and professional students, they have to pay a small ticket price. And faculty and staff get in for free.
0: Okay. So... One of the things I've noticed is, is that you have been putting more and more money to this. How is the conversation, like, obviously you're not recouping that with tickets. Is it coming from food sales? How are you balancing? Because that's one of the things that people always say is like, how are we going to pay for this? When we're like, we have to change how we're doing this to mitigate risk and make it a better experience. How do we pay for it?
2: So you solved right. this problem.
0: How do you pay for it? So,
2: So this event is entirely funded by the students. So the undergraduate student assembly. Uh, they, they have a student activity fee, which every undergraduate student pays. I'm not sure exactly what it is. It might be 3 $350 a year. And that money gets split up among different student organizations, uh, major programming boards, mostly. Uh, one, of the, one of those groups is the Slope day programming board. They receive a certain amount of money. I, I can't remember what it is anymore. It might be 20 or $21 per undergraduate. And that money goes to a giant pot. And the, the idea is you spend it down. Uh, they're not looking to make money. They don't make money. They lose money every year. Uh, and then they also use the ticket revenue from graduate students. Uh, they also open it to alumni. And they used to have gra- uh, guests, undergraduates used to be able to purchase tickets for their guests as well. So that ticket revenue does go in to pay for the, the cost of the uh, of the event, the operations. But for the most part, the event itself is funded entirely by the, the student activity fee and ticket revenue. Yeah, and, and they do not make money. Uh, dining you know, dining sells food and alcohol, and they typically break even or lose a little bit of money. They're not out to make money. Uh, they're providing a service. Yeah.
1: So podcast listeners, just so that you understand the scale of this, um, there is a slope day debrief that Joe Scofito sent me. And just to throw a few numbers at you so you have a sense of what we're talking about, According to the 2022 slope day debrief from Cornell University, the total attendance was 15,670 people, so 15,500 people. And Joe mentioned that there were multiple partners working to create this event. Um, among the volunteers were, uh, 195 undergraduate students, 96 graduate and professional students because it's Cornell, um. 270 staff, and even 18 faculty members, which I think is pretty cool. So this is something that, I mean, Joe, it sounds like there was a pretty widespread buy-in to make this more than just, you know, sort of a, a drinking party, but rather to make it a, you know, something that Cornell can be proud of as an event, you know, by and for the university.
2: It really is, Steve. It's a it, it's a celebration. And again, it's one of the very few events that the entire Cornell community can come together. Uh, you know, we, we look at things like commencement, university commencement, which you know, attracts 20, 30, 40,000 people to campus every year. But that's our graduating students and our, and our graduating uh, graduate and professional students and their families. Uh, undergraduates are off campus at that point. A lot of faculty and staff don't participate in that. But really, we want as much involvement from the Cornell community is possible for this event, it really gives students an opportunity to mix and mingle with the faculty and staff uh, and vice versa. Uh, you know when I first came here, a, a lot of uh, when I would introduce folks to uh, uh, peers across campus, other faculty and staff across campus, I would introduce myself as being part of the Student Activities Office. And, oh, you guys do those events uh, down on the other end the campus. So yeah, we're told to stay away from that on the campus. On that day and you know that was it was it was hard to hear those kind of things because we want people to help we want people to volunteer you see students in a different light you know and the students really enjoy seeing faculty and staff members and again the other piece of this was up until 2014 the event took place on the last day of classes so we were really clashing we we wanted faculty to hold classes on that day because we want people to go to classes um, but faculty would cancel classes because they knew that their students were not showing up uh, eventually, in 2014, the academic calendar switched and last day of classes uh, changed. It used to be on a Friday. It changed back to uh, Tuesday, I believe. Uh, so we started, we moved it to, instead of the last day of classes, the day after the last day of classes, Wednesday, which was one of our two study days, which really opened things up quite a bit. Because now we could do a sound check <laughs> properly, uh, still 8 o'clock in the morning sound check, but at least we could do it without the risk of, of interrupting classes. Uh, so things changed a little bit. Um, we were able to have a little more flexibility with the timeline uh, without disturbing uh, classes uh, and, and uh, uh, those sorts of things. But you know, the planning process has really evolved over the years. But one thing from the start is we've had a partnership with so many different uh, offices across campus in order to make this event happen. Uh, if we didn't have these partnerships, this event could never uh, take place where it was the other piece of this is you know in I think it was 2014 or 15 the event itself was ranked as the the best I can't remember what it was the best uh college music festival in the country uh and and it's uh part of that I will say I, I think it helps to have some Cornell alums on the writing staff of some of these uh some of these um these online magazines but I think Danielle looks askance on behalf of Furman University <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we've we've had uh we we've had some some great press. Uh, we've had some negative press, of course. You know, we we've had some issues, and uh, you know, you don't you don't want to skirt away from those. But for the most part, it's we we've really tried to shift the culture of the event into a day of drinking and and partying from the mid to late '90s and early 2000s into a day of celebration. Now it's a music festival. You know, the the thing now is, and when I was advising this group. We would have these meetings and the students said, hey, I want to be able to call my 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 high school friends that are at other colleges. And I want to be able to say this is who's coming to Cornell. You know, I want to I I want to be able to say this is why I'm here. This is you know, this is a cool thing. I want to do some bragging about Cornell and and the artists that we have coming. And that's really where we're at right now.
0: So so I I have a. Planning logistics day of. So this is an extremely complicated event with a long history. And a lot of people are emotionally invested at a variety of levels, but it's also an event where you have, I think you said 500 volunteers and a whole bunch of people have never been to anything like this before, because that's the thing about working at a university is we get to be part of a lot of people's first everything, right? How through the whole process, both with your campus partners, with your, I'm assuming production companies, um, catering and the people that come to the events, what's, what's your communication plan? Cause that is, uh, sounds potentially complex.
2: It's very complex. Uh, it's a great question, Danielle. Um, uh, one of the partnerships that we have are a few of the partnerships we have are with our, uh, environmental health and safety, and emergency planning department and Cornell university police department. So they are our right-hand people. And we set up different radio, uh, lines of communication different channels for volunteers the emergency the backstage uh, just all sorts of different uh different areas the volunteers the volunteer leads and how we identify folks uh, every volunteer goes through a training on how to operate these radios if, if they have a radio uh, but even even ahead of time you know there's uh, as i mentioned uh, there's a there's a few different committees set up there's operations committee there's a steering committee that they really don't meet much anymore because the event is pretty well uh, established. But, uh, and then you've got the, the Slote uh, Programming Board the Students. So all these groups are broken up and then you have area leads, the volunteers who are leads in different areas. And then you have folks that they report up to. So this chain of command, so to speak, is uh, is very well defined and it's driven by the, the Emergency Management Office, Cornell Police, and then the planners of the event. Uh, which are both part of campus activities out of my office, university events, uh, facilities, uh, and we all work together. So it's a kind of a core group of, of the Slope Day planners. And then it kind of breaks out into a planning committee, then it breaks out even further from there into area leads and the volunteers. Uh, everybody has their own little piece of the puzzle. You know, uh, my colleagues in campus activities who work with the Slope Day Programming Board, they work directly with the uh, production company to, to come up with when the road needs to be closed and blocked off, to load in the stage uh, and, and those sorts of things. But then again, they also have to work with our facilities folks who are working with the fence company and when the fence is going up and where the fence is going to be laid out, uh, how that's going to work, how it's going to look, uh, who's managing access to the roadway so that all these trucks can get in and they're not blocking each other. So uh, all sorts of logistics coordination uh, from that point of view. but. It, it it starts now. I mean, we're actually, I think we've got meetings coming up in the next week or two uh, to start planning this event. But everybody has their own little piece of the puzzle.
0: The whole break the elephant into bite sized pieces. <laughs> that's
2: right. That's right.
0: So
1: Joe Scafito of Cornell University, we've been talking to you about Slope Day and Danielle asked you a question about communication. Let me see if I can drill down on that a little more. So we're talking about upstate New York. Um, I've been there. You have weather. Um, It sometimes rains, sometimes with not a huge amount of advance notice. And I went to college, albeit a long time ago, and I don't remember being particularly sensitive about things like lightning or, well, my own safety. So how do you communicate? So back to Danielle's question, how do you communicate with students about things like weather? Um, And, you know, preface for podcast listeners, Joe Scafido sent me this beautiful, you know, after action report that showed how, you know, sunny and delightful Cornell looked for the 2022 slope day. But it hasn't always been like that, has it?
2: No, it absolutely has not, Steve. In fact, uh, anybody familiar with upstate New York, we've had snow in May. So it's not just the the rain, lightning, thunder, but we have to prepare for snow and cold weather. Uh, And anybody who's seen an entertainment contract, sometimes they have uh, weather clauses in there where they're not going on stage if it's not over a certain 50, 60 degrees. So we need to take those kind of things into consideration as well. And and we won't postpone this event, and we won't move it. It's rain or shine. Uh, Once the stage is set up, we're there. Uh, so, so we do know that. Uh, again, going back to our partnership with our environmental health and safety, event management, Cornell police, our volunteer coordinators, campus activities folks, uh, we, we develop a, a, a very uh, detailed severe weather plan. And the plan uh, has a, a number of different purposes. Number one, it's, you know, what happens in case of severe weather prior to the event, and, and what does that look like as far as notification to volunteers, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, and we're we're we really we utilize obviously modern technology we have a, a cornell alert system uh, we have text messaging we have websites we have all the all the things that most uh, most universities and and major corporations have as far as notification we can reach out to our students very quickly and easily let them know about any plans um, but you know most of the time and this happened in 2009 and I think it was 2018 where we've had to call the event as the headliners were on stage. And again, going back to that severe weather plan, our folks, our our command center, which is offsite, they're in direct line with their own uh, weather uh, technology services and the national weather forecast. Uh, And and they're looking at things and, and they're trying to figure out exactly what it looks like. Uh, 2018, I think it was or 17. They were. They actually gave me a timeline. They they said, okay, it looks like this storm is going to roll in at this time. So at that point, we were able to adjust the support artists. We we pulled all the management company or all the management from each of the the bands in. We said, here's what it looks like. We're going to get music in up until this time, uh, but at that time, it looks like the storm is rolling in. We're going to evacuate the slope. So we can't have anybody on stage after this time. So we readjusted the schedule up to that point. And I'll tell you, they were almost to the minute, they were right on. But we adjusted everybody's schedule and everybody was great. Everybody was on board with it. We had documentation. We could show them that. So that kind of planning was great. And we're really fortunate to have these kind of resources working for us. But we don't always have that. And, you know, one year in 2009, we didn't know the storm was rolling in. Uh, And it was with the pussycat Dolls They were headlining at. They were on stage. And I got a call. I was backstage, and and they said, "Listen, you've got about eight minutes before the storm's rolling in. And if you were on top of the slope, you could see over Kewa Lake, uh, one of the Finger Lakes, and you could actually see the clouds rolling in. Uh, it, it was pretty pretty drastic to see. But that being said, I went on stage and got together with the management, the manager of the of the band. And I said, "We have seven and a half minutes. We're pulling the plug." And they said, "Well, why?" And I said, "We've got a storm coming in. Now, again, the challenge is anybody who's ever done." large scale events, you can't hear, you're sitting on stage, you can't hear anything. I had to have a police officer next to me, relaying information from the command center. Um, so they said, well, we're not going off stage. And I said, well, I'm pulling the plug and, you know, we kind of had to go back and forth for a little bit until I actually pulled him off the side of the stage. And I pointed to the cloud that you can see over the lake. And I said, that's going to hit us in about five minutes. So I said, oh, okay. So he was able to get to the band and they finished up their set. They did. Probably two thirds, if not longer, of their original set, but they uh, they got off off the stage. And again, this entire time, I'm in contact with the command center. They were literally counting down from about yeah you have, you have two and a half minutes, you have two minutes, you have a minute thirty, and I was passing this on. And and they got the band off. We were able to get everybody inside uh, the buildings. Buildings are right next to our backstage area. Um, I was the voice of God, so I went back. I went on a microphone. We cleared the slope. Uh, no sooner did we clear the slope, the skies just opened up and it downpoured, and we were able to get everybody into buildings somewhat safely.
0: So, right, so, so we I, we definitely have questions. We, we, have, we have questions. We yeah. have questions. <laughs> uh, you know, showstop stop is one of those things that is uh, a, a timely <laughs> issue. Um, my my first question is, how long does it take to evacuate the slope? Because it sounds like you did it in two minutes. Is
2: that no it, it took a little bit longer? They gave us they gave us two minutes.
0: Are you they said with, you can do stuff up to two minutes.
2: Up to two minutes, right, okay. All right. And, I was like, and they Who's said we need We need 10, some time. Yeah.
0: People. <laughs> two minutes. No, 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 there were
2: there were probably fifteen thousand people on the slope. Yeah. But when okay. when the when the when the rain started, most people were already either off the slope or on their way into a building.
0: Okay. Steve. <laughs>
2: That that's good because
1: I had the same question. How do you evacuate fifteen thousand students, many of whom presumably are somewhat impaired, yeah, um, yeah. and get them not tripping over, you know, sofas with you know, egg openings
2: through the <laughs> cushions the and ground. stuff like that? Well, that doesn't happen anymore. I'm glad to say it. we don't have sofas, we don't have kegs, we don't have things like that. But it's still a challenge, you know, and part of it is. One of the things we looked at is we open up multiple exits. We have a lot more exits than we have gates. Uh, it's one of the things we came up with. But you know, the other thing is, uh, just last year we instituted Showstop, and that was a result of you know last year uh, Danielle I attended the uh, Eric Stewart's Crowd Management
0: uh, Yes, it's, it's symposium it's nice to see you down in South
2: Carolina. <laughs> yeah, that was great. So you know, as a result of that, I you know we tried to implement a couple things. One of them was a Showstop. Uh, you know, other things like things like spotters and uh, things of that nature that we've never had before. So, you know, those are, those are some, uh, some great additions that we've had. And, and we did it just recently actually with, um, uh, we just had the bedding company at Cornell in Barton Hall as a reunion concert. Uh, that was uh, an amazing show to produce. But one of the things during the planning was having show stop procedure and you, again, utilizing video screens and and the uh, audio, pre-recorded audio, things like that. So, uh, and all the different things, you know, we have uh, we have an emergency inside the venue, we have an emergency outside the venue, uh, you know, what what the different options are for all those.
1: So, podcast listeners, you don't know what Joe scafito looks like. Um, he's he's more he's more imposing looking than I am. So let's just put it that way. So, Joe, you said that you ultimately, you know, after arguing with the manager for pussycat dolls for some number of minutes you finally used your vast persuasive power and presumably university authority to convince them to do what they absolutely needed to do so god bless you for that once you took the mic tell us what you did and how did it go because one of the issues that we deal with you know reason Danielle and I, you know, we're bursting out of our skin to ask you questions about showstop <laughs> is we are often told that, well, the only way to move the crowd is to use the artist because the artist has authority, which to be honest, is not my preferred method um, because the artist has other priorities and different communication skills and may not fully understand, probably doesn't the things that you know because you've been in contact with the command center while they've been singing lyrics. Um,
0: right, and you so, know the venue and the artist knows the stage.
1: Right, you you knew the venue, you knew you know that one could see the clouds over the ridge, but they couldn't. Lots of information that you had. So we are all in on you, Joe Scafido, taking the mic But tell us what you said and then what you observed as the crowd response.
2: Right. So we have uh, in our severe weather plan, the backstage manager, uh, at at that point it was me, now it's one of my colleagues, they have a role. They have a a script that they read, um, impending weather, uh, something like that. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's a very short script. Please vacate the slope immediately and go to the nearest building. Please do not go under tents. Uh, things of that nature. So it has instructions. Uh, It's very quick, uh, but it's it's very direct also. Um, Severe weather, you know, we've been notified by National Weather Service that severe weather is on its way. Please vacate the slope immediately. Those sorts of things. The severe weather plan has outlined details of what every area lead, what their responsibilities are. So if you're in charge of uh, gate A, you go to this building and you bring these people with you. You be sure the doors are unlocked so that you can let the uh, the spectators into those doors. Now, ahead of this, weeks ahead of this, we're also notifying building coordinators to make sure they know of this. Wait, let's, let's the pause you there. You can't
0: tell how much Steve and I are just beaming. It's like, oh, this is a trigger chart. People are doing the things, and everybody's got a plan, and everybody's doing on it. it's amazing. I, I'm like
1: holding two thumbs up as Joe Scafido <laughs> is telling us this stuff. This is one of my favorite podcasts ever right now.
0: My my, my (laughs) cheeks are getting sore for how big I'm smiling. (laughs) Joe, just say the
1: last thing that you said again, because it had two elements to it. People should you announced people should go to the nearest building. And you also had some means of communicating with the people who control those buildings so that the buildings would be unlocked when students got there. Did I hear you
2: right? So honestly, Steve, this was a result from a few years ago when we did not, you know, we had beautiful weather, but we noticed that some buildings were still locked. So fortunately, we didn't have a a problem with it. But ever since then, we work with our facilities, our building care folks, you know, a, a week or two out, we want to send a note out saying, hey, just a reminder, slope day is this day from these times. Please be sure, you know, your building is being used as emergency evacuation location. Please be sure your building's unlocked. So now, you know, what a lot of folks will do, some some folks who've been around for a while, the area leads, they'll actually go to their building before gate's open and say, just want to check, make sure this building's open in case we need it. So that's, you know, again, it's it's one of the things that you you learn from past mistakes, right? You just want to make sure. And, and some of our regular area leads, they'll remind us every year, hey, don't forget to call these building coordinators because that building was locked three years ago. So, right. so we do that. Our the, facilities coordinator doesn't.
0: That's the benefit. Just for things in general, of noting a near miss. Yeah, just in, in any, you know, you note a near miss so that you learn from nothing bad happened. Hooray! There's not, there's nothing okay.
2: more important in, in events like this. My experience is nothing more important than institutional knowledge. So you, the the more folks that we have who've been around for for many years, uh, it just works our advantage. Uh, I've been doing this for this event now. This is my twentieth year since 2003. Uh, I've actually been at Cornell since 1997, but this event started in 2003. There have been a lot of changes, and there have been a lot of new folks bringing in some new information, but there are some things that we just need to continue to carry on. Uh, I think there's only three or four of us who have been around since the very first one, and we can go back and say, well, this is what happened in 2004 or 5 or, or 6, and here's why we do it this way. But there's uh, there's there's something to be said for having those folks around who do want to bring in some some uh, new ideas and, and think outside the box and that, and that's that's okay. Oh yeah. But I think, that's, that's always great. I, always great.
0: If we've tried it already,
2: right, right. <laughs> you know, we we've tried locking the doors in the past and they don't work. We need to make sure they're open. <laughs> uh, so you know, those kind of things. You know, I, I, and I think again, having those key folks like our facilities person is our key contact. To these buildings we want to make sure she's on every one of our meetings when we're planning out these logistics
0: awesome all right we're going to pivot to a new topic
1: so joe when you and i were talking originally about having you on this podcast um, initially we were talking about slope day and as often happens with two loquacious guys like us We went down a different path eventually, and God knows we could talk to you about Slope Day for a long time, because truly, Danielle and I are beaming today. Um, But let's talk about some of the fun speakers that Cornell is planning to bring in for this academic year, Um, because, well, that raises different issues about safety and security, both of students' and of the speakers. So Cornell has a freedom of speech theme for this year?
2: They do, Steve. Actually, last year, our president, uh, President Martha Pollack, announced that for the first time, Cornell was going to have a theme year, and the, the theme being freedom of expression, uh, and, and really giving the university an opportunity to reach out to students, faculty, and staff to really introduce, or not, not necessarily introduce, but to really talk about folks, uh, their their responsibility, Uh, whether that's inside the classroom, outside the classroom, public speakers, uh, the student's role as a spectator when you're going to to watch a a speaker, things of that nature. And, and, you know, Cornell's got a long history of activism on campus. And one of the things that, uh, you know, we have a number of student organizations, over thousands clubs and organizations, and they all do their own thing, right? You know, there's uh, over 20,000 students at the Ithaca campus alone. And they they do a lot. Our, our students are, are very involved, and it's great to see. I mean, there's never a dull moment on campus. I mean, thousands and thousands of events. Uh, one of the things that we we worked with, uh, we have an an organization that I received from from my office called the University Events Team. and it's a, a university group a committee that's made up of uh, my myself and my peers. Who will oversee all the events? And when I say oversee, I mean approve the events. So we review events and we, we uh, approve them so that they can take place. And UET comprises uh, Cornell Police, Risk Management Insurance, University Relations Office, Public Relations Office or Media Relations, uh, Facilities Office, Cornell Dining, Risk Management Insurance. So all the key players from around the university who have anything to do with events, they're part of this team. So, student. Or any event planner, actually departments as well, can come to our meetings, talk about an event they want to have or an event that they're registering, and get our feedback. And we don't actually plan the event; we don't go and we don't staff the event unless Cornell Police is, is present. But you know, we we can give them ideas. We could help them along with the approval process. You know, one thing that's really popular now are fun runs. You know, we don't we don't do 5Ks anymore like we used to. But that being said. Uh, more and more folks want to bring speakers from the outside and so they'll come on our campus or come to our meeting and say I want to bring the speaker you know last year a perfect example students wanted to bring college Repu- or it wasn't the college republicans there's another organization uh had an invitation out to Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter is an alum and she's been to campus before and she's been on campus but she in, in a place like Ithaca which is very liberal uh you know she, she typically draws a lot of attention so we want to come up with a plan for them um uh, Years ago, the college Republicans would bring in speakers like Newt Gingrich and Dick Cheney and some other folks, uh, high-profile, Rick Santorum, high-profile speakers that were drawing a lot of attention. And one of the problems, one of the issues that we had was that because of some of the threats that the college Republicans were receiving from folks who did not want these speakers on their campus, was an inc- it called for an increased security. And the college Republicans were saying, listen, we can't afford that much security. What are we going to do? and eventually the university came together back in 2019 2020 around there and decided you know these students are are correct they shouldn't be suffering they shouldn't have to pay for security because of the actions of other people so the university agreed to start paying for security at any student event or most student events uh so that it, it wouldn't prohibit them from bringing in these speakers so now for an event like last uh Last year, a year ago now, last fall, students were bringing in Coulter. We saw an increased demand for security. We brought an outside security company in addition to our Cornell police, uniformed police officers, to do some bag checks and, and that sort of thing. We also have a, a, a procedure and a process in place, a uh, speech management system uh, protocol where my office and the university events team, we work very closely with the Dean of Students Office. And the Dean of Students Office has a, a number of staff members who are trained speech managers so they'll go to the to the, to the event uh, in question if it's a, considered to be a, a high-risk event or high-profile event. And if they anticipate any kind of issues with protesters or outbursts in the, the actual speech itself uh, or program itself, they'll read the statement ahead of time, even beforehand. And the statement includes language along the lines of, you know, this speaker has a, has a right to speak. Uh, you obviously have a right to be heard, but there will be a Q&A session at the end. So they'll describe any kind of process and procedures that that event will take place. The person will also talk about the fact that if you are uh, if you interrupt or cause this, this event to be interrupted, uh, you'll be issued a warning, and if you continue that behavior, you'll be escorted out uh, with the possibility of either uh, referral to the the student conduct office, or if you're not a student, it might be criminal charges or something on those lines. Uh, you know, they're not meant to be threats, but really meant to spell out what the, what our process is at Cornell. So, you know, last year at the Ann Coulter event, the uh, representative from the student's office went up. They made the statement. Students started protesting and speech, uh, started doing what we call kind of a popcorn protest where people kind of pop up all over the place. They would let her speak for a minute, then somebody else would pop up that person would be escorted out, somebody else would pop up. Eventually, uh, the speaker got really upset and ended up leaving, and it was really too bad. The students put a lot of time and effort into uh, to planning this event. Uh, eventually, we brought uh, Ann Coulter into a different room and she spoke to only the students from the sponsoring group. Uh, but there were a lot of really upset and angry people there from the community, other students. They wanted to see her speak, but because of uh, a handful of students that really drove her away, it uh, just wasn't possible yeah we've
0: we've had speakers like that here as well um and I know different universities handle things different different ways. and that's 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 given me a lot to think about. So thank you for sharing that. So podcast listeners, this is the point where I remind you that if you want to email us, our email address is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. Joe, thank you so much for for joining us today. this was this was a great conversation and I I hold what you guys are doing in very high esteem. So thank you for being a ray of sunshine uh, on this day. (laughs) My face hurts from grinning. (laughs) (sighs) All right. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up. So thank you again, Joe. See you next time, Steve, and stay safe, everybody.